Hello, and welcome to episode 322 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Parrott, and historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my good buddy, retired Navy Captain Bill Toney. And that's it. That's all I'm saying. How are you, Bill? That's all you're saying. <laughs> How are you? I'm going to continue with this joke as long as I can, you know. Sure, why not? I mean, we got comments <laughs> on that today, I think. But uh, we did. it's fine. We did. And uh, with us again uh, this week, and we're always glad to have him, is our old buddy, Dave Holland, uh, who runs the fantastic uh, Facebook page and YouTube channel, Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. How are you today, Dave? Doing well, um, guys, and thanks again for having me on. And uh, I'm enjoying I'm going to speak about part three. Um, the one yes. thing I will um, mention, I was actually listening to your Guam episode. I think two day, two three days ago. Oh, maybe last week. I was doing my walk, daily walk, trying to stay fit. And I was listening to the Guam episode, which is very good, by the way. And um, you, you brought up a guy, a fella, as a Marine um, company officer named Lou Wilson, who earned a Medal of Honor on Guam. Which you done a, you you told a good story about how he um he earned his medal, which is quite amazing. But you left out a trivia part, and I was just waiting for it. And I'm like, oh, why didn't they say that? And probably they don't know it. Maybe because I was a former Marine. This is a bit of trivia. A bit of rock and roll trivia for you. So Lou Wilson, he later became a four-star general and a commandant of the Marine Corps, which is like great in itself. I don't know if his claim to fame you can say is his daughters was the 80s and 90s rock band Heart um, and and Patty Wilson. That was his daughters. So You're no, kidding. I I, no, I'll she, throw that she, in there for a bit of trivia for you. They played for us when we were at the academy. Um, oh, Fleetwood Mac and Hart came and played for us while we were at the Academy. I don't remember saying a thing about my dad's a Marine. <laughs> yeah. Where'd he go to school? Do you know? Uh, no, I guess if you if you look at his, his bio, but when you look up their bios, it just says that their dad was uh, Lou Wilson, and it doesn't mention anything about the Medal of Honor or Commandant Marine Corps. It just says he's a Marine officer, retired Marine officer. Well, that's that's the second <laughs> rock and roll reference we've had in, in, in the last few weeks, because when we did the Mission Beyond Darkness episode with John, um, talked about uh, retired Admiral Ralph Weymouth, then he was a commander or lieutenant commander, Ralph Weymouth. His daughter, when I, I interviewed uh, Admiral Weymouth at the World War II Museum, and his daughter brought him to the museum, and his daughter is Tina Weymouth, who was the basis for the Talking Heads. So that's also yeah, another rock and roll reference there, which is always fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Both daughters. It's interesting that yeah. only rock and only daughters go into rock and roll from the World War II. Uh, <laughs> Let's face um, something in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we could find some other references, but yeah, at least in our in our yeah. respects, the 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 girls and. Yeah. I can understand that to a point, being the father of a girl. Yeah, I got I got one and a boy, and I can I can certainly appreciate I, I can certainly see my daughter being a rock and roller more than my son, but that's another story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> but uh before we get started with today's episode, as we have and always do, please like and subscribe our channel to our channel, and uh, it helps other people find our show. And if you haven't already done so, please do so. And if you have, thank you. And also, if you haven't already done so, do the same for Dave, as it helps other people find his stuff too. And it is certainly worthy of your time. 
On with the show. So on September 21st, 1944, the first Marines were pulled off the line on Peleliu. Uh, seemingly impenetrable Japanese defenses, unforgiving terrain, merciless heat, and constant driving orders had whittled the once elite First Marine Regiment to a shadow of its former self. The regiment had sustained incredible casualties and had been mercifully pulled off the line and sent back to Pavuvu to rebuild. And that's exactly what they would do. The Umer Brogel, uh, otherwise known as Bloody Nose Ridge, still lay nearly unbroken and had taken even more American blood, that being the 7th Marines and soon elements of the Army's 81st Infantry Division. In the meantime, American strategy had absolutely had to change. Banging heads against the impregnable Bloody Nose Ridge simply was not going to work. The island had to be secured as the Japanese were quite simply draining the blood from the 1st Marine Division, with the old breed not having much to show for their efforts. Deciding to encircle the mountain and strangle it into submission, the 5th Marines, elements of the 7th and the Army's 321st Regimental Combat Team, would do just that. Cutting north alongside the, alongside the obstacle, the Americans would take what was left of Peleliu and then try and whittle down the stubborn defenses one by one. You know, last week, we talked about the, the very, very frustrating episode of the 1st Marine Regiment and elements of the 7th as well. And we're going to talk more about the 7th and the, obviously the 5th today, guys. But, uh, you know, in the move north I have in our notes, you know, Rupertus finally makes the decision to cut the head off the snake, or at least to try and cut the head off the snake. And, you know, that sounds like an easy decision to make, but it apparently was not because it took him a while to get to that aspect. But he eventually is like, okay, let's just strangle this sucker off and take as much of the island as we can and whittle these defenses down, which is a smart move to make. So desiring to move straight ahead and take every inch of ground as the lines advance like a road grader uh, had resulted in 70, had resulted in 73% casualties from the now departed first Marines and had begun to whittle the seventh Marines down as well. Utilizing the fifth Marines who had been cooling their heels in the South, Roberta sent them up the island's West road to secure the entirety of the Northern portion of the Island. Bill, can you, Pull up your map and show us the West Road. Can you can you demonstrate where the heck we're looking at here? Can you? Yeah, it's going to be right in here, Seth. And the, 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 again, these the First Marines were chesty pullers. They got the tar beat out of them, like you said, seventy three percent casualties as they were working this area here, trying to get up there. And now these guys are going to be sent up the same road to try to cut off, you know, basically encircle the Japanese who are tunneled into the mountains here. Yeah. If, uh, you know, Dave, if, if there was a weak point in the Japanese lines, uh, or defense rather, of Peleliu, it would be the northern sector, sector of the island. Because most, as we all know, the Japanese, as you as you said last week, the Japanese were in Peleliu, not necessarily on Peleliu. But if there was a section of the island which they were on, it would be the northern section of the island. They send three, five up there to go eliminate these guys, don't they? They did, and um, if you remember, I don't know if you talked about it in episode one, but the yeah, the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Army, the Japanese Navy had built that massive complex in the northern um, part. Um, that was the one that had the, I don't know how many stories down, and um, it was a very nice um, complex, and that was the thing where Kagawa's headquarters was originally. So 3-5 had to move through that area. But once again, they had their Shermans with them. And as a side note on those Shermans, and I don't know if you mentioned in episode one how the division only brought two thirds of their Shermans due to no, shipping. I didn't. We did not. No. 
Yeah, so they only had two-thirds of their Sherman, so they left a third back at uh, Pavuvu uh, due to the shippings because they had some obviously some issues at Pavuvu with, with loading with the docks. They only had two docks at Pavuvu. So anyway, the, what Shermans they had, they used them to the, the greatest extent. And then later, when we discussed the Army, just uh, remind me, and I'll talk about how these Shermans come in effect again or what happened to these Shermans and how Rupertus made another decision. It's a questionable decision. But 3-5 had moved fairly quickly. Um, across this ground because you got to remember it was re relatively flat ground north of the mountain so it's not the Umabrogles to the um, the west so they can move quite quickly and majority of the resistance they encountered were in form of uh, snipers which I don't like to use that term because to me because I was a I was a scout sniper with a you know with a scope but just any anybody that fires around is considered a sniper but they're not not everybody was a sniper but for the purpose, we'll say snipers, sorry. Just Sharpshooters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A man with a rifle. Individual rifleman. <laughs> yes. But they are constantly harassed and killed Marines as they move through a terrain. So the constant sniping become very um, infuriating for the Marines because um, they didn't see where the shots come from. And that's like if you remember in the first uh, few days of the battle, they, they wouldn't find in a lot of the bodies uh, initially because some of the Japanese very – because once again, these are the second regiment of the Japanese. They're very disciplined. So they pull the bodies back into the caves, and, and the Marines become frustrated. They said, "We know we're shooting them and killing them, but you know we're only finding these sniper bodies. Where's the majority of these? You know, un unless they had the mass assaults." But um, I think you said we're going to focus a bit on uh, K three five this week. Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's a good example of a typical rifle company, uh, Peleliu. So I'll t talk about uh, one of the veterans of. Three five was Sterling Mays, and this comes from his book. He said, "Quote: Somebody would get hit before you heard the shot. You'd hear a thud, and the guy would fall. Most of the time, we never saw where it came from. We would fire in a general direction, hope to God we hit something." Uh, mm -hmm. Unquote. But as the infantry advanced, uh, Mays and his squad climbed aboard a Sherman for a free ride. So Mays, Jim McInerney, uh, Jesse. Goog, is that how you say his name? Would you Gooch, know yeah, Jesse Gooch. Gooch. Yeah. Uh, Gooch, okay. And John Tekovich. We're all aboard the tank less than five minutes when um, Tekovich screamed, quote, I'm hit, oh God, I'm hit. And clutching his abdomen, he was already turning pale. The seconds later, uh, Gooch screamed out in pain as he took a round through his arm. And McInery banged on the tank for them to stop, and the men hopped off the vehicle, dragging the wounded with him. The line in the... Growing pool of blood beside the road, Tekovich looked at uh, McInerney, who he had served with since 1942 at Guadalcanal, and said, quote, looks like I'm going to make my old man rich, Mac, unquote. So I forgot, how much was the um, GI or insurance? 10000 at the time? $10,000, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was it? 10000 Less than that. Okay. Uh, so that's what, he's, that's what he's referring to there when he says, I want to make my old man rich. I don't know what it is. How much in today, Bill? Money? Oh, it's 200000 when I retire. I suspect it's more than that now. Yes. So I don't know how much 10000 would have been in 1944. But, but the corpsman took one look at him and realized there was nothing he could do. He had been shot through his intestines. By the time he stood up and removed him, Tekovich was dead. Yeah. yeah it, uh, Jim McHenry, and you've probably seen his records, uh, Dave, because he was, a, as I said, he was a K-3-5 guy from the canal, and, and he had... Uh, he he lived in um, Cala, Florida, I think it was when he passed away, or near there. He and McK he and Mace were buddies all the way through. They were both from Brooklyn, 
um, or Mace were other words from Queens, but they were both New York, New Yorkers. And uh, McHenry, like, as I said, he was one of K-35's Guadalcanal veterans. And uh, he'd been with Tescovich, like you'd said, since 1942. And uh, he, he, Mace later said that, you know, he's, he looked at Tescovich and McHenry started to lose it at that moment because he'd known him forever. And he said, quote, this is why you don't make any effing friends, unquote. And he composed himself. He grabs his Thompson and he tells everybody, let's haul ass, let's get moving. But, you know, that that's that's one thing. We haven't really talked about that, Bill, too many times in that, you know, older units and by and by older units, I'm talking about like, you know, first Marine Division guys who've been in the in theater for a long time. Um, you know, you had that core group of guys who were buddies. And, and and as casualties are whittling the units down, specifically here at Peleliu, you know, you get the 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 new guys come in. In Vietnam, they call them the FNGs. Everybody knows what that mm-hmm. means. And and you often didn't make friends with these people because you were afraid they weren't going to be around very long. And and this is that didn't start in Vietnam. It started here in World War II, and probably frankly even before that. But you you, you often hear about that. Yeah, you often hear about that here. And uh, it, it was very, very true here, especially through this part of the war in 44. Yeah, I, um, I don't want to make it sound, though, like the guys wouldn't help the new guys learn how to survive. I mean, they would. They didn't want to see them killed, but they but they wouldn't want to make friends with them, even as they helped them learn the ropes. I mean, because, because it was hard losing friend after friend after friend. And so just don't. Don't get close. Don't don't. I don't want to know who you are. I don't know. Want to know about your girlfriend. I don't want to know about where you grew up. I don't want to know any of that stuff. Just do this. Don't do that. So you can stay alive. I mean, Dave, would you characterize it differently? Oh, that's correct. And plus, also, you have the whole thing about you're the new guy. You're the boot. You know, even though I've been in the you know Marine Corps a year or two, you know, you're the boot. <laughs> so you you got to know your place. I mean, that that I think that came in effect too uh, a bit, but obviously in combat. They they um, tended to obviously they needed to rely on each other, so they they took these guys under their wings and taught them as best they could because they had to work as a team. But yeah, you had that pecking order plus the whole thing about the emotions. They didn't want to get close to to anyone. Yeah, and we're we're gonna see that that theme that recurring. And I bring that up and and, and you know in the notes I put that at the front end of this episode because you're gonna see that theme throughout this episode here. And it's not just K three five, but in 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 a large part it is. And if you know the story, you know why. But so the remainder of the move north was relatively uneventful, uh, with the exception of the ever present, you know, individual riflemen, we'll call them. We call them snipers. <laughs> we'll just we'll just for the purposes we'll call them snipers. I'm okay. over it. I'm off my soapbox. I'm over it now. <laughs> Okay. I'll spit even, the dummy as Australians say. I've just spit the dummy and now I'm, I'm back I'm back okay now. Fair enough. He's a pacifier too, by the way. K K35 <laughs> did not suffer any more casualties moving in the in the move north. Um as the fifth Marines continued the advance north, the seventh Marines and the aforementioned 321st Regimental Combat Team continued to put pressure on the area of the five sisters around the Umar Uh the lines around Bloody Nose Ridge were static. And I do mean static, like they did not move. And if they did, they only moved yards at a time. Neither side making any real advances. Um, the main push for the Americans was with the 5th Marines in the north. Um, the 5th had possession of Peleliu's northern shore by September 27th, essentially encircling the Umar Brogel. But, Bill, the 5th Marines go off, and we talked about this just very, very briefly, I think, in episode one, because it's an island that's hard to pronounce. It's called pronounced Negazibus. But they do kind of like a side landing, if you will, from Negazibus. Ne- 
See, I can't even say it. Negazebus. <laughs> tell us about uh, tell us about that. Yeah, the Japanese had landed a sizable amount of troops on this neighboring Negazebus Island. And, you know, in fact, I can bring that up and show you where it is. It's right up here. There's an airfield there. And, you know, so that's, you remember when when landed on, let's see, Tinian, we jumped off of Saipan and went to Tinian. Or do I have that backwards? But this is You're different. Right. We are not, yeah, we're not on this island here in Negazebus. So, so they've been taking artillery fire from the small island the Marines had as they moved north. The Japanese had been able to sneak barges from, you're going to, you gave me the hard words to pronounce here, Seth, <laughs> Babel, Babel Thwape to Negazibas, right down the Navy's blockade. Many of the barges had been sunk by the Navy, but many had slipped through. So Rapertus knew that the threat to the north must be eliminated and decided to send um, Third Regiment, Third uh, Battalion, Fifth Marines to Negazibas via LVTs, and nar a narrow causeway to do that very thing. So, by September 28th, 3-5 had suffered lightly compared to the rest of the division, while 300 casualties was nothing light compared to the other battalions and regiments. 3-5 had done okay, fearing another hot landing like D-Day had been. 3-5 prepared for the worst in Igazibas. So supported by tanks, naval gunfire and corsairs from VMF-114, already flying from Peleliu's airfield, and we talked about that last week, basically take off, boom, drop their napalm land, and then do it over, sight, rinse, and repeat. 3-5 made their assault amidst virtually no enemy resistance. 3-5 advanced quickly up, up Negazibus until they ran into entrenched Japanese who had buried themselves inside the ridges and pillboxes of the island, Seth. So, you know, they thought it was going to be tough. It turned started okay, and then it got tough again. Yeah, it's, it's you know, no surprise here that the Japanese aren't going to give this little island up easily. Um, and the reason we 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 talk about Negazibus is not just because it's part of the Peleliu operation, but because three five specifically K Company Third Battalion Fifth is part of this operation. Um, and as we've said before, we knew a lot of guys in that company specifically. Uh, of course, that's Gene Sledge's company. Um, his mortar platoon was under the command of my old buddy R. V. Bergen, uh, and they they're moving towards a large concrete pillbox. And this is this is portrayed in the Pacific the the miniseries, but it's it's accurate. And the way it happens is actually a little more dramatic than it was portrayed in the show. Um, they're taking fire from this emplacement. Uh, the Marines had silenced the occupants with rifle and grenade fire, or so they thought. And this is not uncommon either. They knock out a pillbox and boom, the thing comes back to life. Um, these guys, the Marines sledge being one, are taking a breather on top of this pillbox. They're literally sitting on the top of the thing when sledge hears voices inside the pillbox that are speaking, obviously, Japanese. Um, Bergen opens fire through one of the vision slits while Vincent Santos, who was from San Antonio and retired out in Palos Verdes, California, uh, began dropping grenades down one of the air vent pipes on top of the pillbox. Uh, he drops over a half dozen grenades down the pipes, and Santos could hear muffled explosions beneath him as these grenades are going off inside this pillbox. Um, Santos and Sledge questioned whether the occupants were all dead and soon got their answer when two Japanese grenades came rolling out of the seeming impregnable pillbox. And we'll get to why this thing is impregnable here in just a minute. 
Bergen yelled to get the hell away from the appeal boxes. It was clearly occupied by more than Jap- more Japanese than the four Marines who were on top of it. As Bergen and the rest pulled back, three Japanese darted from the pillbox only to be cut down. Still, there was chattering inside the pillbox, and Bergen went looking for help. At this point, he finds uh, a guy named Charlie Red Womack. Red Womack was from Macomb, Mississippi. Uh, he was a flamethrower man that was attached to K Company 3rd Battalion 5th. Um, he earned his nickname because he had this, I mean, like Ronald McDonald red flaming beard. Uh, he, guys said that he looked like a Viking as opposed to a Marine because he's just this fearsome looking dude. And he was a big old boy, too. Um, he says he Bergen goes up to, to, to Womack and says, hey, we need the flamethrower. And Womack just tells him, says, quote, just tell me where to shoot and I'll get it done, unquote. Um, Bergen goes and he hails a Sherman and directs it towards the pillbox. Sensing their doom, apparently probably hearing the Sherman roll up, the Japanese, several of them, start running out of the pillbox and are cut down by the Marines. Still, fire is coming from this pillbox. The Sherman turns at 75 on the pillbox and pumps three rounds into it. And I'm talking like point-blank range. They're probably less than 50 feet from this thing, and they're pumping 75s into this pillbox. Amazingly, even after taking three 75-millimeter rounds point-blank, fire still came from this damn thing. Bergen yells at Womack to come up and bring up the flamethrower while he told his squad to shoot at anything that moves. Red crawls, red crawls to within 15 feet of the pillbox and lights it up. He said screams could be heard from within the pillbox as it became engulfed in flames. Three more Japanese ran from the pillbox and were killed by Bergen's squad. Finally, the pillbox is silent. By the end of the day, Negazivas has been captured over 90% of the, I, I should say, over 90% of the islands in three fives hands. And by midday on the second day, the remaining 10% was in their hands. But back to the pillbox. You know, when we talked about Batio, we talked about the concrete and log emplacements and different things that are all over Batio. And this is, there, there aren't too many con, uh, coconut log emplacements here on Peleliu or Negazivas. It's more concrete than anything else. When Bergen and I think Santos go into the pillbox after everything dies down. There were over like 14 dead bodies inside of this thing. And that's not counting the guys who'd run out at various times. And, and it was like uh, interlocking walls. So when they would pop a grenade in there and that grenade would go off and kill those guys in that section, it would only kill the guys in that section. And this thing was like a, like a beehive, like a honeycomb. And it was all, you know, proportioned out in different ways to do that very thing, to absorb continuous American assaults. So the reason I'm saying this is that the defenses on the Peleliu area that Nakagawa had prepared were ingenious. And it's not just the Umabrogo, but it's the concrete defenses as well that are just these incredibly impregnable, tough nuts to crack. And and Dave and Bill, we're going to see this as the Pacific World goes on, that a lot more of these concrete emplacements start sprouting up. Dave, you know about Iwo, haven't been there, that a lot of these same kind of things are at Iwo Jima too. Yes. um, And and once again, I don't know when this particular blockhouse was built, because I think we we discussed before that the Japanese have been uh, building these defenses up in Peleliu pre-war. So I don't know if this was a pre-war when they, they built. But um. Just Negasebus real quick. Uh, it was reported it was one of the most perfectly designed uh, amphibious assaults. It was very well planned. In fact, uh, Rupertus and the rest of uh, the division uh, CP and correspondents, he invited them all up and, and some of the Navy guys to watch it. Uh, 
that's one they did. The assistant division commander Smith thought it was a bit strange, but yeah, they went up and watched the whole thing. I think you mentioned um, once again. I go back to your Guam episode. I think it's Guam or King. Anyway, we're talking about point blank naval gunfire when they're bringing in the ships in close, like they did at, at um. I think you mentioned Normandy too, but I think you mentioned I forget which admiral, but the eight inches you bring them in point blank, and that's what they did at at um, Negasibus. They brought them in point blank. And they had the, the aircraft flying in. So it was a very well um, performed operation and yeah. very well planned. And we'll, we'll, I think we'll discuss a bit later in the um, podcast about the planning of the 5th Marines and who was behind all the planning of the 5th Marines. So they planned this one very well. It, it, it was a real, it was a very well executed mission. And and again, Bill, I, if you pull up the map, I don't, I, I honestly have no idea how big Negazibus it was. It's obviously smaller than Peleliu, but it's not, it's not a small little piece of ground. 2,000 yards. Yeah, 2,000 yards from one to the other. So it's a yeah. mile. Um, okay. Yeah, it's small. Okay. So it's, it's about roughly about half the size of Basio, I guess that would be ish, I guess. Yeah, I think so. The tanks leading too. When the tanks led, and they um, which was pretty good, they led with the tanks this time. Mm-hmm. The tanks hit the beach first and provide a lot of fire. Yeah, so the armor support well. is yeah. The armor support is definitely a big help here. So after after three five is done on Negazibus, essentially within you know thirty six hours ish, um, they think they think that they're and the scuttlebutt says that they're going to go back to Pavuvu, that their part in this operation is over. And of course, as we all know, that is grossly, grossly inaccurate. They, they ain't going back to Pavuvu right now. That's for damn sure. Yeah. As we've gone through this operation, we've talked a lot about first Marines. We're going to talk a lot more about fifth Marines today. One unit that we've neglected and not for any reason, aside for the fact that we've just been focusing on others is the seventh Marines. But Bill, the Seventh Marines were heavily engaged in this fight for Peleliu. Obviously, tell us about some of the actions that they're going through here, too. Yeah, because they're trying to hit Umarbogal again. So the Seventh Marines have been bashing their collective heads against the mountains, the mountains wall, for about eight days since the First Marines had been relieved. The fighting for the Seventh had been going exactly as it had been for the First. Right? If we said last week, same verse or a different verse, same as the first. Little to no gains were made at the cost of many Marine lives. Initially sending the seventh to attack the same targets that the first had hit, Rupertus realized that the going would be much the same. Um, Initial assaults against the Amorbogo by the seventh had netted some early gains, masked by smoke screens and supported by Shermans, the Marines of Alpha A-17, they didn't call it Alpha in those days, made decent progress. Um, Japanese opposition was light, and it was first thought that the enemy may have pulled back. Once the Marines began to climb the slope of Walt Ridge, however, the Japanese threw a blanket of, of mortar fire on the Marines, forcing them back to their starting positions with casualties behind them. Further down the line, 3-7, ran into similar opposition, supported by naval gunfire tanks and flame-throwing LVTs, the Marines made gains in hundreds of yards by 0918. Gains of over 100 yards were something to celebrate on Peleliu at this stage. Gains were made here and there along the lines as the toll on Japanese began to mount. 
even though a Japanese in the open was a rarity, continuous Marine artillery, mortar, and naval gunfire began to take their bloody toll. At one point, B-27 advanced to within 100 yards of Colonel Nakagawa's headquarters. Inside a box canyon, however, the Marines were forced to withdraw under the cover of smoke as they took heavy fire from three sides. Not good to be in a box canyon. It was infuriating game of gain and lose over and over again, Seth. Yeah, yeah. And there's one guy that we... We're we're going to talk about him today, but we're going to he's he's kind of out of context, and we have to talk about him because Dave, you've mentioned this, and I, I knew the guy, but he is a legend. Uh, unfortunately, he's 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 deceased now, as most of these fantastic human beings are, and that is one two hundred and ten pound Arthur J. Jackson. Art Jackson, he was known as Art to his friends, of which I'm very proud to say I was one. He had moved to the Pacific Northwest just before high school. He attended high school in Portland, Oregon. He was originally from Cleveland, Ohio, um, where he lettered, no surprise here, being a 210-pounder in football. In 1942, Art worked with a construction crew in Sitka, Alaska, building a naval air station. On his 18th birthday, he went back home to Portland, Oregon, and joined the United States Marine Corps. After completing boot camp, Art took specialized hand-to-hand -hand combat training in a combat conditioning course led by a veteran of the canal. Excelling in everything in regards to infantry combat, Art was initially selected to be a 1919 gunner. However, he, and I remember him saying this, he hated the thing because it was heavy, and he said he hated to carry it. However... He requested and was granted permission to be a BAR man. He carried the 1918, well, I don't know if it was a 1918 or it was an A2, regardless, it doesn't matter. It was a BAR, it's Browning Automatic Rifle, and he joined an infantry squad, which he obviously excels at. You know, do you know a little bit about Art, uh, about Art Jackson, Dave? You Because you, you brought him up in our text messages back and forth. Well, I don't know that much about him, but once I started reading about him, I thought, man, this guy is what we used to call in the Marine Corps a stud. Yes. <laughs> S-T-U-D-D stud with an extra D. Um, yeah, so he's um I started reading about his and I started looking at looking him up a bit. He um he learned a letter of accommodation from General Purtis on a, a place called Hill 660 at Cape Gloucester. Um once again shows the the great guy he is. He carried a wounded buddy named Fred Rigby from a hill all the way down to the aid station under fire. Rigby unfortunately later died. A devoted lover of John Browning's automatic rifle, the Browning, as you discussed, the BAR, he knew how to use the weapon to its maximum effectiveness all the time, saying, quote, I, I was a good AR man. I love that weapon, unquote. He did. Yeah, he did. He uh, on, on the Umer Brogel, and we're going to get to his Medal of Honor story in a minute because it's amazing. But on the Umer Brogel, Art was awake in his carved out hole on the ridges when out of nowhere, four Japanese appeared in front of his position. Art said, quote, I never saw him, never heard him either. Just all of a sudden, here they were, unquote. Opening fire with his BAR, he killed three outright, nearly cutting two of them in half with the weapon. The fourth man missed by Art's fire, jumped on top of Art and tried to take him down, which was a bad idea for the Japanese. Because again, even in his 90s, when I knew him, Art was, I'm a pretty big guy and Art was huge. 
He was significantly larger than I was. Uh, he recalled, quote, I had a good 50 pounds on this guy who was on me. He didn't stand a chance, unquote. He grabs the Japanese, Art threw him to the deck ground and clubbed him to death with his BAR. And I'm not making light of this, but again, if you knew Art, you'd understand why, you know, it, it's kind of humorous when you think of a small Japanese jumping on the back of this very large individual. Uh, somehow in the melee, Art is hit. And I do not know how the hell he was at. I do not remember what he said. I asked my 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 buddy down the hall, Tommy Lofton, who knew Art better than I did, you know, if if he could remember and he couldn't recall either. I went back and looked at his interview and he never mentioned as to why he was hit. I don't know if it was shrapnel, if he took a knife. I don't know. Regardless of this, he is hit and he's got to be carried off the ridge by the Marines to make his way to the beach for evacuation. And I remember him saying that when he was being carried off of the ridge by these other four Marines who are, you know, dehydrated and weak anyway they were cussing him the whole way down because he was huge and they, they were carrying this monster down these down these ridges under fire by the way and we're going to get to the stretcher bearers here in a few minutes so you know and while that story is impressive enough bill that's not the best part of that art jackson story and i'm going to hand it off to you here to read tell us about his medal of honor action that actually occurs before all this happens yeah, earlier in the campaign, I think it was D plus three, Jackson's I-37 were busy clean, clearing one of the small islets of Peleliu named uh, Nurmagomedov. right? Is that, did I pronounce that correctly? <laughs> I don't know, man. N-G-A-R-M-O-K-E-D. Yeah, N-G-A-R-M-O-K-E-D. Yeah, his platoon was being held up in their advance by Japanese in pillboxes. Art's platoon sergeant and platoon leader had both been killed by the interlocking fields of Japanese fire. Trapped and isolated by the Japanese pillboxes, Jackson and his platoon mates were in a really bad spot. Taking it upon himself to see if he could alleviate the problem, Art hugged his BAR and peered over a shell crater to get a look at where the Japanese fire was coming from seeing a narrow depression that looked like it led towards the Japanese positions, he decided to see if he could do something. He figured that if he could follow the depression to the base of the pillbox, he could fire into it and throw grenades if the Japanese didn't see him first. Art had 13 BAR magazines and a handful of grenades. Asking a Sergeant Scheidt for TNT and more grenades, Art began to make his way down the depression. By moving out into the open, he would be not only exposed to enemy fire, but in a spot where his own men could not provide covering fire for him. Nevertheless, he moved on, sliding around the ground like a worm. He got near to the position and jumped up, ran in a low crouch closer to it, as yet the Japanese had not seen him. Crawling the rest of the way, he got within a foot of the firing aperture, jammed the BAR in the aperture, and dumped the magazine, one magazine. Bringing up the rear was Sergeant Scheidt with, a sat with satchel charges and White Willie Pete, White Fox's first grenades. Art threw three to four Willie White Phosphorus grenades into the pillbox and took cover on the corner as the grenades went off and burned everything inside. As the grenades went off, Art 
took the satchel charge and threw it into the aperture, then, then turned, stood up, and ran as fast as he could. The explosion was tremendous. And as he said, quote, it shook the ground like hell and hammered me with concrete pieces, unquote. The blast killed at least 35 Japanese in that one position, Seth. Yeah, and that that and and the amazing part it was part of it is is that as impressive as that was, he wasn't done. He what he had just begun kicking ass with that position knocked out. His Marines moved forward, not finished as I said. And now with his buddies providing covering fire, Art made his way to two more positions nearby. He knocks those out, repeating his actions from earlier. He dump a magazine and then throw WP into the positions. Art repeated these actions a total of 11 more times by himself, officially credited with knocking out 12 enemy pillboxes single-handedly and killing well over 100 Japanese. Art was recommended for and later obviously receives the Blue Ribbon. He gets the Medal of Honor, rightfully so. He was one of only three living recipients from Peleliu, Ev Pope being one and Carlton Rao being the other. A total of seven Marines were awarded the Medal of Honor on Peleliu. Art later said, quote, when it was over, I just hit the ground. I was so damn tired. All I wanted to do was sleep. I was no damn hero. I was just a good Marine, and I did what any good Marine would do if given the chance, unquote. And yes, he was. Very, very cool guy. One of the great honors of my life was to know Art Jackson. He was and, and his wife, Miss Sally. They were just incredible, incredible people. Very humble guy till till his dying day. Just a very, very nice big teddy bear, but not a guy you'd want to piss off. I assure you. <laughs> I assure you. Dave, give us a situation report at the end of September on Peleliu. What what is it looking like? You know, we've gone through these individual actions and we've talked about companies and Art Jackson and Gene Sledge, and, but give us the 40,000 foot view of Peleliu at the end of September. What are we looking at? This is roughly what, two weeks after the invasion. So um, after the uh, three, five went in, uh, I guess of us, you want to Negusibus. say that, right? <laughs> of us one time, I think four or five people would say it different ways. Um, so the men of 3-5 had their eyes on Pavuvu, like you mentioned, believing that the time on Peleliu was up. So you could see how they seen that because the first Marines, had, I don't know if uh, had dead left at this stage or they're back yeah, they at the beach. Gone. Yeah, they're, they're gone. gone. They're long gone. So obviously they had that in mind. They go, look, we, we've done our time. Let's go. So that wasn't uh, the powers to be as the reporters and the division staff said, no, that's not going to go. So um, the brothers in 1-5 and 2-5, were fighting in the north, just like them. So three five couldn't leave the brothers. They moved in position to support the seventh Marines attack on Umabrogel. So the fifth Marines were by far, as Bill mentioned before, the freshest of the, the Marine regiments on Peleliu. Uh, at that stage, they had suffered 30% casualty rate since D-Day. Uh, but once again, uh, the seventh Marines had a, roughly about a 45% and a 70% by the first Marines. And when we say the 70% by the first Marines, the first Marines overall suffered about, I think, over 54%. The first battalion of the uh, first Marines suffered over 70%. That was uh, Ray Davis's unit. So they almost was wiped out. Um, but Repertus had his fresh regiment. So if you could call it fresh. And he's going to use the 5th Marines. Once again, he's he's not holding out. He don't want the Army in there. He's still using these uh, Marines, using up the Marines, so to speak. He continued to put pressure on the Japanese entrenched in the ridges. Um, 
once again, what the Emma Braga Ridges uh, I read where it was a good description, um, a complex cave and ridge fortress suitable for fanatic and suicidal defense. So this is what these guys had to face. Now, casualties. We're talking about percentages of casualties. By September the 30th, so roughly well, 15 days after D-Days, two weeks, the first Mardif had suffered 5,044 casualties, of which some 843 were KIA. A further 356 were missing and presumed KIA. 81st Division, which we'll cover in a few minutes, had suffered 46 killed in action, 226 wounded action, and seven missing in action for a total of 279. So I think we mentioned it before in the last episode or the first episode that you're thinking 18,000 Marines, well, that's not really much. But then when you narrow it down to 9,000 of the frontline mm -hmm. infantry, yep. and then the 9,000 frontline infantry, you probably narrow that down a bit more because they're not the, the, the infantrymen, the riflemen on the front line, even though the, the other infantry guys are suffering. So if you hear a unit has taken three to 4,000 casualties, that's generally in the infantry. So that's basically almost decimated that unit. They're ineffective. And then I think it's probably a good time to bring up, at this stage, they're pulling the cooks and the bakers and the support personnel and, and, and pulling them up. Yep. And I'll, I'll bring a quote. This isn't from Bill Ross's Peleliu. I'll bring a quote about Major Joseph E. Buckley, the 7th Marines Weapons Company CEO. His own way of handling the visitors, because some of these guys are, were coming up, these support personnel were coming up to visit, so to get souvenirs or, or whatever, to have a, a, a peek in the front line. Any men found in his area without good reason was properly seized, handed rifles, and placed in the line. Quote, if they behave themselves, I notify their unit commanders of their whereabouts and, and present employment, unquote. He said, otherwise, I didn't bother, and they were carried on AWOL as being as long as I choose to hold them. But saying that, some of the guys, once again, you know, like the air crews, some of those guys just came up to, to help out the Marines, either stretch the barriers or grab the rifle because right. they knew their, their brothers in the infantry was, was doing it tough. So they helped out too. But some of these guys that wanted to come up, they were kind of drafted or conscripted very quickly and thrown in these rifle companies because they needed everybody they, they can. Remember the famous uh, line with Puller? When he said, I need replacements, he said, you got 18,000 guys sitting on the beach behind me. And I think it was O.O. Smith or O.O. Smith, the uh, assistant division commander, says, well, they're not trained infantry. Infantry. He goes, send them to me, and by the end of the day, they'll be trained infantry. They just needed people. Every Marine is a rifleman. It sounds good on paper, but sometimes in reality, that's not the, the case. Um, so we don't know at this stage, at the end of... Uh, September, the exact Japanese casualties were not and could not be calculated, and obviously probably never will be calculated. They're merely assumed or quietly simply guessed at. It's estimated as many as 9,000 Japanese have been killed thus far in the campaign. The prisoners mostly uh, Korean or Okinawan, and they numbered about 180. American intelligence guessed there was roughly 2,500 Japanese remaining on Peleliu, old hole up in these ridges, now called the Umabrogo Pocket. Yeah, and and as we'll see, that guesstimation by American intelligence is actually pretty dang accurate. They're they're pretty close to that. And I I read, I'll be honest, actually, I read as to how they they got that estimation, and I I frankly don't recall. But I mean, it's it's eerily accurate, actually. Um, the Umer Brogel, Umer Brogel pocket that you were referring to, Dave measured some nineteen hundred yards on the eastern side and twelve hundred yards on the western side. That does not sound big, but 
when you're measuring your advances within feet, that is almost and seems like an insurmountable object. Average width of the Umabrogo pocket was 550 yards at this time. And while, as I said, it doesn't sound large, every nook and cranny in that area is infested with Japanese, and it is, who are dug in and well-supplied. And I mean well-supplied. Unlike, and this is important to note, and Bill, we've talked about this ad nauseum in every single Pacific battle we have talked about that occurs on land. After a while, the Japanese start suffering from lack of supplies, mainly it's usually lack of food and ammunition. That is not the case here. These guys, because they're inside of Peleliu, as they've said, they've got an abundance of everything. The only thing they don't really have a lot of is drinking water, but they wind up getting that because Nakagawa insists on rain rain barrels, and it does rain on Peleliu. But this is one of those rare Pacific battles, Bill, where the Japanese are well-supplied. And, 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 I mean, they could have held out forever because of their supply situation. Yeah, Colonel Nakagawa could have cared less that the Marines had pushed him and his men back into the pocket because his command and his command post was a two-chambered cave some 40 feet deep. And the, the way these these caves, uh, the, the walls were kind of overlapping so guys could scoot around. So explosions on one side wouldn't penetrate to the other pocket. Uh, got, and then, but guys could quickly reinforce if an explosion occurred and, you know, repopulate these pockets. So to top it off, Nakagawa had constant radio communications with Japanese General Inoue on Koror via underwater oceanic cable. He was prepared to hold out for a very, very long time. So progress had been made by the seven Marines, albeit slowly, since their introduction to the ridges. By October 1st, Boyd and Walt ridges were firmly in Marine, ha Marine hands. Yet, the east road of Peleliu, and I'll show you right here, um, we're talking about going up this road here. The east road of Peleliu, um, was still not completely clear of enemy fire. Still, the Marines pressed on and paid for the capture of many of the ridges in rivers of marine blood. So, for example, 3-5 moves south to take up positions facing the internal cave filled with the internal cave-filled ridges near the Five Sisters, the very same mass of crevasse and crags that had bled the first Marines to death weeks earlier. As the Marines moved into position in the ridges, snipers, Riflemen constantly harassed them. Any form of movement drew enemy fire. And if someone exposed themselves for more than a second, it would draw fire. And that fire was usually very accurate, Seth. Yeah. Uh, my old buddy, Sterling Mace, who was also a BAR man uh, in K-35, he told the story about one time his his best buddy in K Company 3rd Battalion 5th was a guy named Seymour Cy Levy. Uh, Cy Levy and, and Mace were thick as thieves. They, they were, you know, Batman and Robin. Wherever one was, the other one wasn't far behind. And it, it, you know, goes back to their early days together when they joined the Corps within weeks of one another. Um, Levy... On Negazibus, I think it was Negazibus, he got hit in the chin. Like he took like shrapnel or something and it, it gouged out part of his chin. And uh, he was walking around wearing this big white, well, by that time it wasn't white, it was probably filthy bandage on his chin um, from this wound that he had sustained. Uh, 
about two weeks before they move into the ridges. Um, Sterl said that that Levy was a guy who always had a joke. You know, he was a smart ass. Like he always would make fun of something that somebody said. He was, you know, the irrepressible kind of a guy. And he said that after he got that wound in his chin, that something in him changed. Like he was very sullen. He was very moody. He was depressed. You know, he he was he was done. He'd had his fair share of combat. Uh, and he he was worried about him. He was worried about the fact that, you know, he wasn't his normal self. But as Sterl said, he attributed that to just the sheer exhaustion that all these guys are suffering. Um, Mace is up on the ridge and he's laying behind a rock and he hears a single rifle shot. Boom. And he doesn't give it a second thought. He says it it, it made him jump, but he really didn't think anything about it because it's going on all the time. After a few minutes, his squad is given word to move out. Uh, he immediately looks for his buddy and he couldn't find him. And uh, he asked another Marine, he says, where's Levy? And the Marine turned away without saying anything. And then he turns around and he says, nobody wanted to tell you. He got hit in the head. He never had a chance. And this is a recurring theme here, you know. And, and again, I said this at the beginning of the episode is the loss of friends. These guys had known each other for a very long time. And now they're starting to just disappear. Uh, Sterl was absolutely shocked. He was absolutely dumbfounded. It was then that he realized that the shot he had heard was the one that more than likely had killed his best friend. Uh, usually composed, he, he broke down only to be comforted by his platoon sergeant, Jim McHenry, who himself had broken down just a couple of days before. Uh, McHenry said, quote, he was antsy, referring to Levy, said, quote, he was antsy as hell. I kept warning him to stay down and he just couldn't. He wouldn't listen. The longer he sat, the longer we sat there, the more impatient he got. Finally, he said, quote, I'm sick and tired of this shit. And he stood up, popped his head up, and they nailed him before he could bat an eye, unquote. Uh, you know, and, and the sad part about this is, but it's also, it's beautiful at the same time, not that Levy's dead, but why he wound up getting killed is because the wound that he had taken in his chin, it was what they called a million-dollar wound. Like, he could have gone home, or at the very least, they could have gone to Pavuvu. And he should have gone to Pavuvu. And as a matter of fact, he was in an aid station getting ready to go back to Pavuvu. And Levy couldn't leave his brothers. He went AWOL from the aid station and went back up on the line, back to K Company, and fought with his buddies. So the shot that killed him never should have killed him because he should have been, at the, as I said, at the very least, back on Pavuvu. And he, he said that that, May said that that is what bothered him more than anything else is that he never should have been there. He should have been back home. And and unfortunately, he wasn't. He felt more of a dedication to his fellow Marines. And they were his family. And he wanted to be with his family. And Seymour Levy was only 17 years old when he was killed. 17. Amazing. So, yeah, it it, it doesn't get any easier either as it goes along. So, so Dave, uh, 5th Marines, along with the 7th Marines, they're keeping the pressure on the ridges, um, specifically around Five Sisters and the East Road. Tell us about what's going on up around there. So over a period of days, uh, beginning around October the 3rd, 3-5 put me in mortar fire, along with the 11th Marine 75mm, these are the, the howitzers, into the Five Sisters. Um, the 11th Marines have been pounding the air for a period of weeks, absolutely smothering a tortured ground with artillery fire, artillery fire, sorry, old, old habits. I mean, he casually did inflict on the Japanese were unknown because of the end, it, it didn't matter. So, Seth, at this stage, if we actually, are they bringing the 75s into direct fire at this stage? I know they did. So, 
earlier. With so, the, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know the, 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 the fire you're referring to here. No, it is not direct fire. This is, you know, straight up regular old fashioned artillery fire. I know exactly what you're referring to, but at this stage, I don't believe they were. I don't think they're lugging those, those pieces up to the top yet, but I could be wrong. 155. Um, I, I think, um, they first used it three or sorry, was it three, five? It was the fifth Marines that used it at radar Hill when they were coming down and they brought up a one five five and they said, we're going to fire directly into the cave mouse, the one five fives. And they brought the one five fives 300 yards away. So I don't know if any of your listeners or viewer knows about a 155 millimeter gun, but firing it from 300 yards away, point blank. Imagine firing a, um, a rifle, shooting at a wall about three feet away. You're going to get something called backsplash sometimes firing at a, say, for example, a concrete wall. And that's what these guys are doing. These artillery men of the 11th Marines were that sandbagged this 155, and they were getting shrapnel back on the, the, the sandbags. But they were actually working direct fire. Um, once again, the Marine casualties throughout this whole campaign was high. And yet, again, as any advance becomes stalled in any ground game was lost to the Japanese counterattacks, because I keep saying Nakagawa and his reinforced 2nd Regiment, Manchurian uh, veterans, these guys were, were top, top rated. I mean, oh, yeah. A lot of times we say, oh, you know, it's a crack unit or it's an elite unit. These guys were. These guys were. These guys were very efficient, very fanatical. They're Japanese infantrymen under a very, very capable Colonel Nakagawa. And they were determined to, uh, they had their suicide and fanatical place to die. And they had a, like the devil built it for them, Uma Brogel, and they were going to use it. Um, so at this point of battle, you've seen a lot of the, um, the references, they, they mentioned it, it's starting to turn into siege. And we'll see later, they're using siege-like medieval tactics with saps and things like that. Um, Rupertus, the division commander, failed to see that and continued to execute head-on attacks by his Marines. He still thought, we're almost there, we're almost there, keep pushing, keep pushing. And they continue to be cut down in droves. So I think um, there's a bit about uh, Gene Sledge. I think he comes into a play here, doesn't he? He does. He, he does. Yeah. Yeah. He's a mortarman. So, so sledge is not often on the front lines. And by that, I mean, by front lines, I'm talking about like, you know, eyeball to eyeball. I mean, he did see his fair share of, of, of close combat for sure, but more often than not as a mortarman, he's not going to be up on, on, on the front lines. And this is not, you know, uncommon here uh, when the infantry would reach their objectives and, and he's dropping fire not just him, his squad, his motor squad is dropping fire from the Marines as they're trying to advance when they reach their objectives, or in some cases when they have to pull back from their objectives, um, the, the mortars had stopped firing and the mortar men, and not always, but usually the mortarmen would act as stretcher bearers. And I want to talk about this because this is a there's a lot of famous footage of stretcher bearers on Peleliu getting shot by the Japanese um, in the brutal type of warfare that was being fought by the United States and, and Japan. Stretcher bearers, medics, corpsmen were all ripe targets for the Japanese and for the Americans. By the way, just going to say um, they were easy prey as it generally took four men to carry one guy on a stretcher, not all the time, but usually it took four guys to carry one man down from the ridges on a stretcher. Um, those men moved at a snail's pace down the treacherous slopes and were often picked off by the ever-present Japanese snipers. Gene Sledge said, quote, my heart pounded from fear and fatigue each time we lifted a wounded man onto a stretcher. 
raised it, then stumbled and struggled across the rough ground and up and down steep inclines while enemy bullets snapped through the air and ricochets whined and pinged off the rocks. Frequently, enemy mortars added their shells in an effort to stop us, unquote. Bill, the stretcher bearers would often marvel at the composure of these wounded Marines, which is just astonishing. But tell us about some of these stretcher bearers and the things that they experienced. Yeah, well, if if the wounded Marine was conscious, conscious, they would often exhibit extreme gratitude and seemed at ease. I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes you get this feeling that, okay, uh, I'm alive, I'm home, you know, kind of thing, right? Often exhibiting extreme confidence in their saviors, the men carrying the stretcher. The wounded men seemed to show no fear that they would be harmed anymore once they, they were under evacuation of the stretcher bearers. That being said, far too often the wounded were indeed harmed further by the Japanese in the often slow process of evacuation. Wounded were often killed on the way down. But through the confusion and chaos of evacuating the wounded, the stretcher bearers didn't realize that the wounded had been killed until they reached their end goal, a relatively safe spot where they could take a look at them, see how they're doing. Casualties continued to mount over the next several days with the 5th Marines beginning to resemble the 1st Marines in terms of lack of men. Again, little to no ground had been gained, and what ground had been gained was sickeningly small. And it wasn't for lack of effort on the grunt's part. Never ceasing to follow orders, the men trudged up the hills, into the valleys, and awaited their fates. It was heartbreaking. So 2-7 and 3-7 had been relentlessly attacking the pocket for weeks, as had 3-5 for little return. So Seth, what happens here? Yeah, it, it's... It's again, you know, second verse, same as the first. Waltz Ridge, Boyd Ridge, and the surrounding areas has been captured and held. But the momentum, and Chesty Puller was the one who was all about momentum, but he's he's gone now. But still, this is a marine thing, you know, it's momentum, momentum, momentum. The momentum of recent successes was almost impossible to maintain. In one instance, L Company 3rd Battalion 7th attacked Hill 120, and the results of the attack were much the same as others. When L Company came down from the ridge, only 11 men walked down from the original 48 who attacked. Think about this for a second, and I got this in the notes. The numbers are shocking when you look at it in detail here. A Marine Rifle Company who numbered 235 men on D-Day now only had 48 in their ranks with which to launch an attack. After the attack, only 11 were left, and six of these guys were wounded. So these units are literally being wiped out to a man. And I mean, we've never, in all the battles we've talked about, even Tarawa, this does not happen to this degree. I mean, this is an absolute just bloodletting here. That I mean, there are entire Marine units that are being wiped out to a man. And it's it's incredible. And 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 it's, you know, this is why we did three episodes on Peleliu, is because People don't know this, you know, because it, it's surrounded, Peleliu is surrounded by Forager and then after Forager, obviously you got Peleliu, but in between all this, you, you've got the Philippines. So it gets lost in the shuffle, but it is an absolutely 
heartbreaking episode in World War II history. And, you know, if I could jump in here, there, there's a principle of war called economy of force. And and you're you're making this you're making a superb point, but you know economy of force is um, you need to preserve your troops for the things that really matter. And here we are on Peleliu. It is not an end objective. We've talked about earlier about the decision to go into it. Imagine what we could have done with these Marines down the road, whether. Even Philippines, I mean, that's, you know, won't talk about Marines in the Philippines, but I mean, later Iwo Jima and places like that. So, so as you talk about this, you need to think about it as an, from an economy of force standpoint, and boy, did we violate that principle of war, Seth. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And Dave, it's not like, you know, we, we've talked about the Marines making these assaults or advances or lack thereof. And it's not like they were lacked support. You know, we haven't really talked a whole lot about it, but these guys had consistent support. It was just that the, the nut was that tough to crack. But tell us about some of the support. And by, by that, I mean artillery and, and, and air support here. Yeah, so basically... And you're, an, and you're an artillery guy too, Dave. No, no, I'm an infantry guy. But, you, but didn't infantry. you do artillery at one point? No, I, was, I, I called artillery in. Oh, okay. I'm not a cannon cocker. They call them cannon <laughs> cockers. Very, very important uh, branch, by the way. My bad. My bad. I'm just kidding. Cannon cocker. I mean, it's an cock the cannon. I don't want people to think otherwise or other things. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll get back on track. Um, yeah, so once again, the support for tax. That's one of the things uh, you read about Puller and this, his distractors say in this battle that he doesn't know supporting arms and he, he didn't use supporting arms like we'll see the 5th Marines did. But to give him a bit of credit at the time he used what supporting arms he had because remember a lot of this you know marine air wasn't really there the marine artillery hadn't really landed that hard um so some of the stuff we see the using supporting arms now wasn't available for the first marines and the thing about puller if you look at his history his battalion commander on guadalcanal um then he led two battalions on cape gloucester he was he used um supporting arms he was one of the first ones to use supporting arms so They've started to work there, getting more support there, more support on the ground, then they're starting to use them, especially Bucky Harris and the 5th Marines, who's the, the colonel of the 5th Marines. Um, they're starting to use this support and using it to advantage. They're starting to think it through. Um, the artillery was was there from day one. I don't think they had the 155s on the ground, but they had the 75s and the 105s. Um, air support, who was there? Um, I don't want to cover your ears, Bill. So the naval air support in the first few days were good, and the Marines liked it. But when the Marine, I think it was the 24th of September, the Marine mm -hmm. air finally landed. Mm -hmm. And the Marines loved their Marine air support because the whole Marine air wing is designed for close air support. I mean, every Marine officer, uh, a pilot is trained to be an infantry commander. They go on the ground, so they they know how to do this. Um, and they more feel more confident when they got Marine air flying around. So yeah, true. Between D-Day and D-plus 14, the pilots flying from Peleliu's airfield dropped 62 120-gallon uh, napalm tanks on the ridges. Think back to the Guadalcanal days when they're dropping depth charges on the ridges, which a lot of people right. don't believe. 25-58-gallon mm -hmm. tanks were dropped as well. The Corsairs fired some 3,996 rockets and dropped 
157 1,000-pound bombs, 968 500-pound bombs, 307 250-pound bombs, and 2,071 100-pound bombs. Um, on October 8th alone, the Corsairs dropped 35,000 1,000-pound bombs on and near the Five Sisters. But once again, as I said, complex cave, Japanese are in it, fanatical suicide defense, they're in the caves, deep down. Um, once again, the I think I read where the airfield was so close when you were talking about these guys are just the shortest um, combat runs probably yep. in history. Yep. But they, they were so close, some of the shrapnel they were dropping was coming straight back on the airfield. Imagine that. Close air support, you're dropping your bombs, and then the um air the air um guys on the ground are copping flak. That's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So napalm, you mentioned the napalm tanks, mm -hmm. uh, 120 gallons and 50 gallon napalms. Napalm had been first used to any to you know wide wide use on Tinian just a couple months before. And the Marines liked the results of the napalm. And, and Bill, you can get into the, the the physics of napalm here if you would, if you want to. And it, it it had been looked at as a much a game changer, you know, for for situations like this. However, on Peleliu, it did little to nothing. Um, prisoners, Japanese prisoners, later remarked that the napalm just made a big whoosh noise. And they felt the heat, albeit significantly dissipated, deep inside their subterranean defenses. The one thing napalm did do was to burn off what was left of the vegetation on the Umarbrogel, and you can see this in the pictures, uh, which was, as as I put in the notes, a double-edged sword. The lack of foliage would allow the Marines to occasionally see the Japanese and did not allow the Japanese any cover in the open, but it also did the same thing for the Marines. So they had no cover as they're trying to move up to these locations, so they're constantly taking fire. No vegetation or very little vegetation left them wide open and vulnerable to any and every shot fired. Bill, we haven't gone into napalm in, into great degree, but it is a nasty, nasty, nasty weapon. Well, obviously it burns people, but it also sucks the oxygen quite literally. That expression is used figuratively all the time but it literally sucks the oxygen out. And it can also create kind of a vacuum by consuming. And, and so those three factors, the concuss concussive effect as well. So it, it has a whole bunch of different ways that it can kill. But if this tunnel system has multiple essential air vents, basically, because there's multiple entryways into the tunnel system, the sucking of the oxygen out doesn't have the intended effect. And so, because there's another way for the oxygen to get pulled back into the tunnel system. So it's replaced, reju re replenished. So yeah, if the fire doesn't get to them and there's multiple entry points for the oxygen, it's, it's not gonna have much of the intended effect. It's something that has a bigger concussive effect might be a more appropriate weapon. By the way, there's a science to this and it's called weaponization, um, and weaponeers decide what the best weapon is given a, the, the size and scope and scale of the tunnel system. That's a modern science. There are pe professional military people who do this for a living, but I, I think it was just basically hit and miss back in these days. Oh yeah, I, I don't. I don't think there was much of a science to it at that point yet. I think that comes later after we capture all these places and start literally digging into them and seeing it. 
but you know exactly what you were saying though bill i mean when you when you got a honeycomb of caves which is what the umar broga was and you knock out theoretically one cave if that if that one cave is being fed by five others in terms of oxygen, it's not going to kill all those guys as the napalm is intended to do. So, no, that was excellent. That's why I threw that one at you for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, without so, even warning me. <laughs> sorry, that's all right. All right, what I'm here so for. So, Bill, I'm John Madden. <laughs> a little more than John Madden. So, Bill, tell us about uh, by October sixth, and we're jumping a few weeks ahead because. You know, I mean, just so everybody understands, every day mostly is like the day before on Peleliu. And, and, you know, and Dave, you and I talked about this via text late last week is that, you know, we got to kind of skip around to some things because it's just the same thing. It's infuriating. That is just, it's, you know, over and over and over and over again. It's frustrating as all hell. But Bill, tell us by October 6th, the 7th Marines had faced basically the same fate as the first, not quite as bad, but they're in dire straits. So again, there's a conversation between Geiger and Rupertus. Tell us about this. Yeah. And part of the story further down uh, was covered in a very gripping manner in the miniseries of Pacific, but, but we're going to start here by October 6th, the seventh Marines faced nearly the same fate as the first, albeit not as bad. The seventh were in dire straits. Like he had done before, General Geiger told Rupertus that the seventh was finished, just like he had to do with the first. Again, the day before, as before, Rupertus ignored the Corps commander's not-so-subtle suggestion, saying, ah, give them a little more time. They'll take the pocket, and the battle will be over. So apparently Rupertus thought these were invitations, not orders. Geiger just stared at Rupertus and repeated the fact that the 7th was done. By the end of the day, the 7th were being pulled off the ridges and replaced by what was left of the 5th. This is the last regiment standing. Rupertus' prediction at Peleliu being a quick operation was now a sick joke, and everyone knew it. Bill. The sad thing was that he had not seen, he did not seem to know how to deal with the problem at hand. Dave, were you going to jump in here? I was going to say he's turning to a sick joke. I was reading where a, a common joke at the time for the Marines, they said, look, would you rather prefer two weeks leave or a purchase of three-day pass? Which one would you like to have? <laughs> you know, two weeks leave or a purchase of three-day pass? So, you know, once again, that's just you know, dark humor of the Marines under combat. <laughs> yeah. Marines are no further black humor. As you know, Dave. Yeah, so here we have Lieutenant okay. Colonel Deacon, who's the division personnel officer, you know, we, what we would call now the G1. He recounted, the, recounted at one point, Rupertus was sitting at his bunk, on his bunk, with his head in his hands, muttering, this thing has just about got me beat. Bucky Harris of the 5th Marines recalled how he walked in on Rupertus in tears. The general told the 5th Marine CO, Harris, I'm at the end of my rope. Two of my regiments are in ruins. You seem to know what to do and get it done. I'm going to turn over to you everything we have left. This is strictly between us. Now, what rank was Harris again Colonel. at this point? Colonel. Regimental Colonel. Colonel, Colonel Marine. Right. 
So here's General Rupertus, the division commander. He's ready to turn over his division to a colonel. This is strictly between us. The reason it's strictly between us is he doesn't want to lose face for doing this, Seth. Right. And of course, I mean, that, that obviously doesn't happen. But I mean, this is documented fact that Rupertus, and I'm not trying to bash the man. I mean, Peleliu's taken a, taken a toll on everybody. And this is just a further proof that, you know, Rupertus does not make good decisions. I don't care anybody. He does not make good decisions and he's pigheaded. But this is wearing the man down. Actually, it's not wearing him down. He is worn down. He's done too. And, and, you know, this conversation with Bucky Harris is, is a thing that this is not, you know, this, this happened. And that just goes to show you that, that he was done. He, he needed to be pulled out of there. And Geiger at one point had thought about relieving Rupertus and he didn't do that for multiple reasons. And frankly, he should have long before this ever occurs. Dave, I know you wanted to say something about Bucky Harris. Yeah. So Bucky Harris, um, once again, Bucky Harris was, do you know much, I don't know if there's some of the viewers, are probably because he. this is kind of like, if you don't know deep into Marine Corps history or, or a bit about World War II Marine history, you really haven't probably heard about this guy yet until Peleliu. But Bucky Harris was, um, he was there from the beginning. So he was there, he was in Nicaragua, he got wounded in Nicaragua in the Banana Wars. He was a very smart fellow. I mean, he went to all the good schools. He was known as a, like a good staff officer. Um, he was an intelligence officer. And then uh, Rupertus had him as the intelligence officer, and he also worked into the plannings um, on Pavuvu for the division. But they had an issue with the 5th Marine, I won't say his name, but the 5th Marine's commander before Peleliu. They had a, a, some issues with him, and he was relieved. So the only person they had at that stage, the best, most appropriate, was Bucky Harris. I think Vandegrift actually said, look, send Bucky Harris up. Um, and Bucky Harris took over the 5th Marines. So he was a questionable. Okay, how's he going to go for the battle? Because look at the other regimental commanders. You had H.H. Hannikin, uh, 7th Marines. You had Puller, 1st Marines. But you had this kind of unknown uh, Bucky Harris, which the guys did know him. I think he actually was Puller's XO at one stage on, for a short time on Guadalcanal. But Bucky Harris, he was a thinker. And he had a saying called, be lavish with ammunition and stingy with men's lives. And this is how I'm going to approach my um, attack on Peleliu. Kind of like how the Army did it, U.S. Army did it, and but you know Marines' momentum for a certain reason. But Bucky Harris started; he started looking at it and thinking about it. But I have to mention his XO, which they were a great team. Lou Walt. We mentioned mm -hmm. Walt's Ridge. Probably should be called mm -hmm. Pope's Ridge, but right, <laughs> Lou exactly. Walt. Now Lou Walt, I mean, having a having an XO about Lou Walt, who was a, a, a thinker, and then you had Bucky Harris, who was a thinker, and once again. Uh, Negasibus is a good example of their planning. But Lou Walt, initially in the first uh, few days, I think second day, 3-5, had lost a um, battalion commander and their XO. Lou Walt went up and took a charge of 3-5. And I think in some of you uh, listeners and viewers might remember when you talk about Lou Walt on Cape Gloucester or Walt's Ridge. Yep, yep. Took over 3-5, earned, earned a Navy Cross. He pushed that 37 millimeter up the ridge, remember? And him yep. and his guys. Um, yep. He was a protege of Edson. And he was trained by Puller, and when uh, Puller was the um, one of the instructors at the command or the um, officer school, but he was mainly a protege, known as a protege of Edson. So he had Edson's qualities. He was a thinker, and he was a combat officer. Because Bill would would um, know about this, and plus, I guess anybody in the civilian world would know. So you have your leaders, 
who are, say, put it here, you combat leaders who leap from the front like a puller or Hanneken, they're combat leaders. Then you have your staff officers who are the thinkers. They're probably not the most personable type of, 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 of a leader. They kind of leave from the rear, right? And they don't walk around the front line, but they're great planners. They're great thinkers. Rupertus was a staff officer type of leader, right? Puller, Hanneken were combat leaders. And generally, to have an effective unit, your CO or your XO, it doesn't matter. One of them's a combat leader, one's an admin guy or staff officer. If you put two combat guys together, they're probably going to fail, like you've seen with Hunt and um and Whaling and the Fifth Marines and in, in, um in, in Guadalcanal. And Puller always had he called him an admin guy underneath him as his XO, someone who could think. But sometimes you have those rare men who are both. Paris and Walt were both great combat leaders from the front because their men loved them and they were great thinkers. So and we'll see why some of the tactics that Bucky Harris and Lou Walt come up with, which that whole um, emphasis of be lavish with ammunition and stingy with men's lives, because they had the support at that stage to to use this ammunition and and try to be stingy with their lives and and try to change their tactics. And um, that's a great quote, I, by the way. That's a great quote. That's what he, he used to say. He used to say. And remember Bucky Harris too. I think day one or two he was injured injured because he was in the command post. Remember in the tank ditch. And a round landed, and I think it collapsed on his leg, killed a few guys around him, but really injured his leg and wrenched his knee and leg, and he could could barely walk. I mean, obviously, like Rupertus, he could barely walk because he had a, a broke leg but or a broke ankle. But Harris had to get around. That's why he called Walt back from leading 3-5 and says, you need to come in and, and help me, not take charge, because um, Harris could have left, but he stayed in the field injured the whole whole time. Um, and remember, Bucky Harris, he, in the initial days, he flew over in an observation plane, and he seen the Umbrogue, and he goes, look, we need to take this in from the north. Told Rupertus and Puller. And Puller and, and Rupertus basically said, yeah, well, oh, we understand what you're saying, but we have maps, too. We can read. We can see. And they kind of dismissed <laughs> him. Yeah. So that was that's another controversial. Yeah. Of the, of the, if um, I could... Yeah, if I could fill in just a few gaps here. When you said that uh, he was an intel officer, back in these days, intel, that was a collateral duty. So today, an intelligence officer would grow up as a second lieutenant, and they would always be intelligence, and you would never put an intelligence officer in command of an infantry unit. Um, but these days, you were an infantryman, primary duty. You might be an intelligence, secondary duty. And the same thing with the comment about staff and combat, right? There, those were not a formal separation. Those were kind of a personality thing. And, and I mean, some guys, yeah, some guys are great thinkers, but in order to communicate what they're thinking, they need to be in a command post with really good comms so they can move the chess pieces. And it's really hard to do that when you're up front. And other guys want to, they need their eyes on the line in order to, to, to kind of visualize how the battle's progressing. They need to be up front and they'll rely on somebody in the CP to, to actually relay the communications. So the, the, this is personality-based, not formal designations we're talking about here. The combat officers, what I mean, too, they live from the front. And also, they're very personable, very impressionable. They're, they're very um, charismatic. They're the guys, mm -hmm. that, you know, he's a great leader. We love him, we love him, love him. But then staff's officer, say Rupertus, you know, he wasn't that well-loved in the division. But he was a great staff officer, and that's why Vandergriff, you know, liked him. He he was known as a very a thinker and a planner from from days on. But sometimes you put him, 
you know, they're not going to walk around and, and, and instill confidence. Right. Then uh, some of these combat, very impressionable guys like a puller or Edson or, you know, they'll walk around and they'll, look, this guy leads from the front. Sometimes probably mm-hmm. not the best planner, but yeah. And it's very rarely you get a, someone who's, who's both of those. And I think any the viewers or listeners could equate it to their, their work place today mm-hmm. or look at later and go, yeah, that, that, that person's good with people, but he's not good with planning or she, he or she, but then this person is, is an exceptional leader is good at both. So, Hey, talking about fifth Marines, Dave, you know, and, and we've been talking about them all episode long, mostly is, is K company third battalion fifth. And their CEO was a guy that we talked about a little bit last week, a guy named Andy Haldane. He was an absolutely beloved figure amongst his men. You talk about a leader. This guy was a leader. He had long ago earned their respect. Uh, those who had served with him on the canal and Cape Gloucester knew what kind of a leader he was before they ever hit Peleliu. Uh, the boots, like Gene Sledge, realized what kind of a man he was shortly thereafter. Uh, never faltering or lacking courage, Haldane was ever present at the front lines. Uh, Haldane's aide was a guy I knew named Sergeant Richard Higgins. Higgins himself was a canal and Gloucester vet and said of Haldane, quote, he was more than just a CEO. He was a real friend. Anytime he told men they had to go up front, he was right there with them, unquote. And Bill, uh, Gene Sledge, if and I know we've all read Sledge's book, he thought that Haldane hung the moon. And he has a pretty good quote yeah. about, about Haldane here. He does. And, and this is what I was talking about. It was really well covered in the miniseries Pacific. And Haldane's nickname was Akak. And so he says, Gene Sledge says of him, quote, we were thankful that Akak was our skipper. We felt more secure in it, felt sorry for other companies who were not so fortunate, unquote. But even Haldane was showing the effects of extreme tension exhaustion. That'll grind on you. You feel such a great responsibility for your unit. That, you know, when every time you lose somebody takes a little bit out of you. So it's wearing on him at this point. And, and again, Sledge says, you can see it on his face, how tired he was, I mean. But even then, he was calm, serene, never flustered, never yelled at anybody. But man, was he tired, unquote. And so the point here is that you try to keep this fact that it's wearing on you from your troops because you don't want to make it worse on them than it already is. And when they start thinking the CEO's panicking or the CEO's at his wit's end, now they're starting to think we're not going to be well-led. So not only do we have the enemy to worry about, we got our own leaders to worry about. Somebody's going to kill us, either them or our own leaders. So that's why this becomes an issue and good leaders try to hide it when it's wearing on them like this. So early on the morning of October 12th, three, five, or whatever was left of it, moved into freshly captured territory in relief of two, five. The ground they were occupying had been captured hours before and was still littered with warm corpses and under fire from the neighboring ridges. As K-3-5 moved into position, they were warned by those of two, five, that Japanese sharpshooters are everywhere out there even one glance can get you killed instantly. So advancing at a low crawl to the highest point on a ridge to spot for enemy positions, Andy Haldane made his way up with some of his senior NCOs, including Richard Higgins. 
Jim McCarney and Johnny Marmet. Haldane was spotting for places to put his machine guns and had crawled a few feet ahead of the rest of rest to peer over a rock. Peering no more than four to five inches over the top rock, he said, we need to get them as close as... And then a bullet smacked into the beloved skipper square in the face. Haldane's head jerked backwards, then flopped against the coral. Higgins, only a few feet away from the dead skipper, was covered with Haldane's brains and blood. Shocked at what he had just seen, Higgins tried to yell for a corpsman, but no sound came out. He just stared at his dead captain, Seth. Yeah. It, the, the news of Haldane's death uh, hit the men like a sledgehammer. And, and and I'm not referring to Gene Sledge's nickname. I'm being dead serious. It, it it hit them like a sledgehammer because it didn't take long for word to trickle down from the top of the ridges. Two guys like Sledge who were at the bottom of the hill uh, that their that their leader had been killed. Johnny Marmet, who was the faithful platoon sergeant, simply rubbed his tear stained eyes and said, "Let's go. We still have a job to do," and moved up on the ridge. It, it, Dave, Bill, you both know this, that, you know, when somebody goes down, you still got a job to do. It doesn't matter who it is, even though you're going to feel it, the personal loss, or in this case, personal and professional loss, um, you're still going to feel it. You still got a job to do. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that is their role. Their role is to continue with that job. There's only one guy that simply could not carry on anymore, and that was Dick Higgins. Um Higgins Higgins was tied to Haldane's hip. You know, he was his aide. He was his not, not his runner so much, but he was with him all the time and had been with him all the time. And when Higgins got down from the ridge, he walked down with Haldane's body. And he saw Haldane's gear that was piled up at the bottom of the ridge because as they were getting ready to move into these positions, Haldane and and Higgins and Marmet and um Bergen was there, but he wasn't up with the rest of McHenry. All those guys, they dropped all their gear so they could move up faster. And Haldane just left all of his stuff in a heap. And when Higgins goes down there and he sees all of Haldane's gear in just this pile, he just loses it, absolutely loses it. He'd had enough. He'd been, you know, he'd seen all that he could possibly see. He was put in sick bay for four days and he never got over the death of Haldane. He said, quote, it was the kind of thing that never gets out of your mind completely and it still hurts to think about it. I've wondered a thousand times why I lived and he didn't, but I guess it's true that only the good die young. And Andy Haldane was a good man, as good of one as you will ever find, unquote. And we make a big deal out of this and we've been continuing to do this because it's the theme, you know, when we've done these episodes, you know, especially Tarot will build it, the, the theme in my mind going through the whole thing was loss, you know, the mm -hmm. loss of men. When we did Forger, specifically the three on Saipan, the theme in my mind was tragedy over, you know, with the civilian deaths and, and, and all this. The theme with this one is just absolute abject. It's a combination of the two. It's loss and tragedy because it's the loss of so many good men like Andy Aldane for an unnecessary operation. And, and, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So... With for, um, that, 
just, just like we said, this is a, just an example of this one company. Yeah. I remember a story, a guy for the viewers and listeners that can look him up is um, Captain James. They call him Jamo Shanley. You remember reading about him? He's in Lima mm-hmm. or L Company 37. Yep. And he's a very, very similar. He, he earned a Navy Cross on Gloucester. Very similar story. And I imagine it was rep- told repeatedly or re- unfortunately repeated throughout. But the thing it, about Peleliu is just the whole 1st Marine Division was destroyed. Yeah. The right division was destroyed. It wasn't itself when it went into Okinawa. No. It wasn't at the same quality of the what you see here. This was the, the best they were ever, really. Absolutely. They were at the top of the game, and it was destroyed. And that's what really kind of breaks my heart, too. And I, I've been following these guys, read about them so much, and, and studied them so much in Guadalcanal, then Gloucester, then see, you know, a third of this, the third of the division was, was um, canal vets, and two-thirds were canal and Gloucester. So yeah. they basically destroyed them. And this was their last... After this, they were going home. All those yep. canal vets were going home. This is the third campaign. They're out of there. This yep. is it. It's just destroyed yeah. the whole division. Yeah. It destroyed, and then yeah. ones who the survivors it destroyed them mentally. They were never the same either, including yeah. the commanders. I mean, look at poor Rupertus. I mean, he he ended up what? He died of a heart attack four or five months later. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. just I mean, it, that, that that's a very good analysis because yeah, you're 100 right. You know, the, the the first first Marines first Marine division. We're at the top of their game here, and they're never the same after this. Never the same. But now they went the same division, especially yeah. with the draft. So, so, so once and and Haldane's death does not get the fifth pulled off the lines, but it's near that time. Haldane gets killed, if I remember correctly, only two days, which is even makes it even worse. Hmm. Two days before they are pulled off the lines, and with the pulling of the fifth off the lines, the army takes over Obor. They had been ashore since, you know, Geiger said, you know, y'all come on over and join the party. The 321st had been there. But now the vast majority of the 81st Infantry Division is ashore on Peleliu. And uh, Bill, this is <laughs> this is one of the frustrating things that we've talked about this before, you know, where MacArthur, you know, says that Biak is over and they're still in the invasion phase. This is a very similar occurrence, but it's Roy Geiger who does this now. Tell us about uh, yeah. the assault phase here. Yeah, he announces that the assault phase of Peleliu is over. <laughs> Obviously, it must be over because the army showed up. Uh, yeah. While it certainly was not, the news was somewhat bright as the 5th Marines' salvation was near. So for them, it was bright. Geiger again had to go to Rupertus and subtly suggest not so subtly suggest, that the 5th Marines were done. Rupertus, again, refused to acknowledge reality. Geiger was faced with the relief of Rupertus, which he did not want to do, or give an order for the relief of the 5th Marines, which he hesitated to do as well. And while Rupertus and Geiger demurred over the ultimate decision, the decision was made for them from above. Vice Admiral Theodore Wilkinson who's the overall commander of Steelmate, was reassigned by Nimitz. Wilkinson was succeeded by Rear Admiral George Fort, who wasted no time in making the decision that Rupertus could not continue. Within hours of Fort becoming the new overall commander, he told Rupertus that by October 15th, the following day, the 81st would begin relieving the 5th Marines on the line. Within three days, 
all Marine personnel were evacuated from the front lines. Now, so Marines always complain about Navy guys in overall command making decisions that Marines should make. But by God, this time, a Navy guy made the right call and when the Marines should have made that call earlier. When the 5th Marines left the line, it was estimated that fewer than 1,000 Japanese were still within their Mabrogal. That didn't seem to matter, however, as it took the Army an additional six weeks to finally eradicate the enemy from the island. The Army had been ashore since September when the 321st Regimental Combat Team had come ashore to relieve the 1st Marines. 3-321 was deployed to the east along Walton Boyd Ridges, while 1st Battalion 321 held Hill 140. After taking over for the Marines, the soldiers of the 81st attacked just as the Marines had done before them and achieved similar results. The fortress was, that was the Umabrogo, was just as unforgiving to the soldiers as it had been to the Marines, Seth. Yeah, and and that's important to point out because I've read in, in some other histories, it's like when as soon as the Army took over that it was like smooth sailing. No, uh-uh. nope. because they employed the, as you said, Bill, they employed the exact same tactics that the Marines had been employing to no real result. But the key is that the Army commander or Army commanding general adapts to where Rupertus did not. And that's that's the key. So sick and tired. And Dave, this is what we're talking about, the artillery in, in particular, the, the, the direct fire. Sick and tired of caves coming back to life after they had been neutralized, because they're all interconnecting. Remember this. Soldiers primarily occupied their time by sealing the caves with explosives from 19 through 21 October. Once the ground around once the ground around them and the caves had been cleared of soldiers, uh, take this again. Once the ground around them and the caves had been cleared of Japanese soldiers, the soldiers, the United States Army soldiers, slow, began a slow, methodical advance and got crafty in their ways of getting rid of the Japanese. This I found, found to be rather interesting. And one unique experiment, the soldiers requested that Marine Corsairs drop unfused napalm in areas that were close to the lines. Fear of the jelly gasoline spreading amongst friendly troops prompted this, which makes sense. After the aircraft dropped the bombs, the soldiers pulled back from the area and threw Willie Pete grenades at the bombs to set them off. The resulting explosions and heat drove dozens of Japanese snipers from their hiding places where they were summarily killed. So the, the Army starts adopting these unconventional ways of dealing with the Japanese here, Dave. And they had already become accustomed to Peleliu's bitter fighting. Uh, Major General Paul Mueller is the 81st Infantry Division's commanding uh, officer. He decides to adopt the siege tactics that Rupertus, frankly, should have before. Tell us about some of this artillery that goes on through here. I think I mentioned a bit earlier, but um, some of the artillery pieces the Army had was the 75s millimeters and 105 millimeter howitzers. So they're doing taking a, uh, a page out of Japanese book. So they disassembled these things and then they carried them off the ridges and reassembled them for that to uh, supply that direct fire straight to the cave mouths and the, um, the entranceways. So they, you see them, they put pulleys on them. They got ropes. They put them up. Sometimes they even throw some of the parts on the back of the soldiers. I mean, obviously probably not the, the main bit. Yeah, the but, tubes. You know, yeah, tubes, yeah. Here's the carry, still on your back. Okay. Yeah. Big fella. Um and 
it started working. And once again, they are they brought a few one five fives up too in direct fire. Mm-hmm. Here they're they're bringing them up. So sometimes one five five on direct fire couldn't hit some of these these uh, caves and crannies. So by bringing the seventy mainly the seventy fives, not the one hundred fives, they brought the seventy fives up to the higher um, areas, and they're allowed to fire down in those holes that that the that the air support and the naval gunfire could never reach. But that direct fire support straight on the Japanese, and even enough to suppress the Japanese because they they buried in in, in their deep that the rest of the uh, soldiers could move in with their flamethrowers and demo charges and either blast them shut or burn them out. So right now we're learning great uh, techni- techniques you'll see in Iwo Jima, especially in Okinawa, especially this corkscrew and, and blowtorch, and how to how to get these Japanese out by blasting every cage in- entrance, just blast them shut. Um, yep. The thing I thought was quite unique, it, it reminded me back in the old sapping days, the sappers, you know, when they'd move the trenches up when they're doing siege warfare, they'd, they'd move the sap, they'd dig a trench, put sap up, put saps up, which is like at that stage, I think they were like wicked, wicked baskets full of sand or, or dirt. And then they would dig a trench and move more sap up. And that's how they'd move up and they'd have the saps up front covering them. So that's what the army did here. They they brought tens of thousands of sandbags ashore. They filled them up. Um, they would advance in some spots. They'd push the sandbags in front of them and they'd crawl behind them. They're probably taking a page. Somebody probably read about siege warfare in the medieval days, or in the medieval days in the 1800s. The, the siege of Sebastopol during the Crimea War. Let's do this. Let's just move them up. And even in Great War, they used to sap in the trenches. And this is what they were doing. So they they'd basically move them up, and um, as they moved along, which was pretty good. Um, once again, tanks, tanks was worth the wait to go. And this is the the point where I mentioned it um, to remind me. That Rupertus, one of the decisions he made, he sent the whole first tank uh, battalion back to Puvubu. The whole, he said, sent them all back. And the assistant division commander says, I never knew why he did that. Because he didn't really speak a lot with it to the decision, assistant division commander Smith. And, and Smith didn't really like to talk out of school, but some of the things he did say, it's one of the things that perplexed him, why Rupertus sent back the whole battalion. He says, these tanks were good as gold. And, the, and they were replaced by... I'm generally good with, with unit numbers, but I forget. But anyways, a, a U.S. Army tank battalion with the, the 81st. But these guys are inexperienced. He says, you replace this whole battalion with an Army tank battalion, inexperienced. Why can't we just supplement them and have more tanks there? And that was another questionable call. But once again, they used these tanks, and they started using um, combined arms, and they combined. They started thinking outside the box. Not the same that the 1st Marines and the 7th Marines initially didn't know how to think outside the box, but they didn't know what they were confronted with. So now the 5th Marines and the armies are looking at this and say, look, you know, we, we can't crack this nut by direct frontal assaults. We need to think outside the box, adapt mm-hmm. and overcome and improvise. And they started doing it, which was, which was good. So the tactics started working. So by October the 21st, the three, um, 321st Regiment had captured the five brothers in a horseshoe um, and they're being reduced to assistance of two platoon uh, tanks, like I said. They also had some M10 uh, tank destroyers mm-hmm. and the uh, LVT flamethrowers. I think some of the guys have seen photos of them or, or moving pictures of them. They, I forgot how far they throw their flame out, what, 150 feet? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, that's why some of the, the Marines and armies would describe you in Barogles as the Dante's Inferno, because it looked like that, especially with the flames going. Um, by 1100, the horseshoe was in army hands. It continued their slow but successful uh, methodical advance. Uh, the army dug in around the five sisters and brought up searchlights to shine on the Japanese positions. So once again, they're thinking outside the box. 
The searchlights didn't deter the enemies, however, as they attacked, attacked that night regardless of the lights. Their attacks, however, repulsed and any ground loss was uh, reacquired the following morning. So there, on that thread of thinking outside the box, Bill, there, there is a particularly nasty way that the dog, that the dog faces deal with the Japanese in these caves because they can't get to the damn things. Tell us about, and this is ingenious, and it's nasty, it's a horrible yeah. way to die, but it works. But they, they didn't think of it until the beginning of November. So pipelines yeah. was built from the airfield, a pipeline from the airfield to the ridges. You know, there was some really genius combat engineer who came up with this. Diesel fuel was then pumped through the pipeline and poured into the mouth of the caves with the aid of a booster pump back at the airfield. No, then needed no needed a big pump at the airfield, a booster pump to get it up to the top of the where the ridges were, and a nozzle. The effect of a garden hose was obtained, said the Army report. The diesel was then lit by Willie Pete grenades or flamethrowers firing from a distance. These those inside simply roasted to death. In the flames. On October 24th, 1944, Colonel Nakagawa radioed his last message to Corps. One final attack was made against American positions that night, and none after that. It was assumed that Nakagawa either died in the attack or killed himself. With that attack and defeat, the 76 day fight for Peleliu was finally over, Seth. 76 days. Three. Initially mm -hmm. predicted to be, huh? Little three days, 76. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's longer than Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima was 36 days. This is 76 days it took to take Peleliu. At the end of the day, at the, at the end of the campaign, like you'd said earlier, Dave, the 1st Marine Division had been absolutely gutted. In the 30 days of combat in which the Marines were involved, the division lost 6,526 men. Of those, 1,252 had been killed. The infantry regiments each suffered over 50% casualties. First Marines lost 1,749, fifth, 1,378, and the seventh, 1,497. The Army's 81st would lose another 3,728 casualties. Most, and I say most, of the 12,000-plus Japanese on Peleliu were killed. Estimates say that 10 to 11,000 or so were killed by the 1st Marine Division during their ordeal. So they eliminated 95% of them. And I say most because in 1947, 26 Japanese emerged from the Umar Brogel and surrendered to American forces in 1940 freaking seven, three years after the end of the battle. There's still Japanese a, living inside this. Not They're living quite well. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't hold so, out as long as the guys on Guam, but yeah, this is something. No, no These guys I mean, are living quite well. Did you read the story about how the, the Marines went down and then after they got out to uh, inspect their quarters? No. Yeah, they were living quite well. They're well fed. They're well. They're well supplied. They had fresh uniforms. Um, they had running or the water. And one of the Marines that went down there. This was like nineteen what forty seven. He was a pre OW the uh, the um, Japanese during the war. And he looked around. And he goes, "We never had it like this. These guys are living well." Hmm. It's just yes, tells you how how you know 
well designed that that fortress of Uma Brogel was. Mm. It's it's incredible. And and, and before we wrap it up, because we're running a little long, but but we got to address this. And I just put these three brief topics for discussion. First one I got to ask. I already know the answer, but I want to ask you: Was it worth it? Was Peleliu worth it? What what's your opinion? But Bill no. first. <laughs> I'll be very succinct. Absolutely not. 2020 hindsight, but that's what after action reporting is all about. Go ahead, Dave. I agree. I mean, it, obviously hindsight 2020 and, and even Halsey told him, but it, it was only two days before end of the day. I mean, it, it did achieve some things, but it didn't achieve the destruction of a whole Marine division. Yeah. Wouldn't work. I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I was going to say the only thing that the uh, Operation Stalemate 2 achieved was the destruction of the 1st Marine Division, in yeah. my opinion, in my professional and personal opinion. That's what it achieved in destroying the finest light infantry division in the world. And they, and they were. Because like you said, Dave, they would never be the same after this. Never. Could calculated it risk. Been... Mahalsey, sorry. Mahalsey's no, calculated no. risk. I mean, was the risk mm -hmm. worth it? wasn't risk. I mean, what the outcome, what you're going to gain from this, is it worth the actual... The, you know, the outcome. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Halsey, Nimitz, right. Nimitz, is, Nimitz is calculated risk theory. You know, you can take the risk, but make sure the, you know, the benefit outweighs the cost. Right. Didn't hear. No, and that's as I say, you know, could it have been bypassed? Yeah. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's what, yeah. that's what island hopping is all about. I Just mean, like we bypassed you know, a ball. Imagine if we'd gone into a ball. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been much the same. Probably it would, it would have been worse, but, but I mean, you know, yeah. could this Island have been strangled on the vine? Heck yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, what, what was it a threat to the Philippines in any way? No. no. It's 800 miles, right? Yeah. I think it was 800 ish. miles to late ish to late. Oh, come on. That, that nonsense that, you know, I can't believe people are still asking that question. Yeah. And, and it, it's just very frustrating, you know, of, of all the battles that we've done, of all the campaigns that we've done, this one is the one that literally as, as, as I'm writing the notes, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just getting mad because it's so yeah. unnecessary. And, you know, you can, you could, you know, we had people say, Oh, Taro wasn't necessary. Yes, it was. You know, Saipan absolutely was necessary. You know, Tinian, yes. Guam. Yes. The, the Marshall Islands. Yes. Peleliu, no, not a chance. And that's what makes it so, so very, very frustrating. We um, we praise Nimitz a lot on the show, as we should. This is this was, you know, Nimitz's folly. I don't, I'd never heard anybody call it that. But this, but this one, you know, we, there was there, there was shared culpability for this one. It's not, but N Nimitz should have known better. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, guys, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up this heartbreaking trilogy on Peleliu? I think I'm, I've said it all that I want to say, really. I mean, I could, I could talk forever, as you know, but, yeah, um, I appreciate you allowing me a chance to, to speak about this very important but um, not as well-known battle. Yeah, well, Dave, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you here. So, Dave, there was one... Uh, there was one little segment before we wrap it up and before I give our, our closing statement here, there was one little thing you wanted to 
bring up that you found in a book you'd sent me over the weekend, uh, and it was in reference to Peleliu. What 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 was that quote again? I'll read it here. Um, this is when the, they're basically leaving. So the uh, Marine Sergeant from the Seventh uh, Regiment, so they're leaving Peleliu. Two ships appeared offshore three days later. The Navy AKA Sea Sturgeon and an old Dutch merchantman, the Slatterdyke. And survivors of the 7th Marine Regiment embarked. At Peleliu, as Peleliu disappeared below the horizon, a dire sergeant from Hunter Hirsch's battalion, a survivor of the attack on Baldy Ridge, stood at the stern of the sea surgeon. He looked back at the island and only mumbled, nothing at all, A-T-O-L-L. That's what we'll name it. It's nothing at all. So that was mm-hmm. um, poignant. That, that, that's Pretty much exactly what the what the first Marine Division got out of Peleliu was nothing at all. And to close us yeah. out, I'm going to uh, relay a little quote by my old friend Sterling Mace of K35. He told me that whenever he thinks of Peleliu, he thinks of his buddy Cy Levy, Seymour Levy, as we talked about. And when he thinks of Levy, he thinks of Levy's favorite piece of verse. And this is a fitting requiem. It's from Kipling's Gunga Den. And it goes like this. So I'll meet him later on in the place where he is gone, where it's always double drill and no canteen. He'll be squatting on the coals, giving drink to poor damn souls, and I'll get a swig in hell from Gunga Den. And with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, too. We also would appreciate that as well. Um, if you have a question or comment, please send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, once again, my name is Seth Barron, and I want to thank you very much for listening and or watching. Dave. Thank you very much for being with us for these last couple of episodes. It's always good to see you. It's been too long, and hopefully we can get you involved again as we go forward. I loved it. Thanks again. Yep. And everybody, like and subscribe to Dave's YouTube channel called Guadalajara. Try again. Guadalcanal, walking a battlefield. It is a wealth of knowledge. Do it. You will not be disappointed, I assure you. Bill, bring us home. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.